Hello, and welcome to our first episode of A New Legacy, where we will be having transformative conversations with community leaders and policy experts who are working to build a more inclusive and holistic vision of justice for this country. My name is Annie Nichol, and I'm here with my sister, Jess Nichol. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and we are about to embark on this exciting project to learn more about how people are working to change the criminal justice system. We're going to be speaking to some really remarkable people who have been doing this work for a long time, as well as people who have been impacted by incarceration and other crime survivors like ourselves. Uh, most of our episodes will be centered around those conversations, but we thought it might be useful today to talk a bit about our personal stake in stepping into this work. Uh, so do you maybe want to start there, Jess? Yeah. Uh, so... So what gives us a unique position to be having these conversations and recording them is that our sister was kidnapped and murdered, and her name was Polly Class. And this kidnapping turned into a very high-profile case, which got national attention in 1993, and there was a lot of impact afterwards, specifically on our criminal justice system. Some really harsh sentencing laws were passed in the wake of Polly's death that have worsened mass incarceration in this country. So we are seeking out people who can teach us more about what we can do to possibly counteract some of the harm that has been done as a result of this awful event that happened in our family. Yeah. And having public conversations about this is, it's uncharted territory for us. You know, we've mm -hmm. pretty much led private lives up until this point. I'd say we've uh, we've even tried to distance ourselves from this part of our story for many years. A lot of friends didn't even know about our connection to Polly. So, mm -hmm. so maybe we could say a little bit more about the specifics of the story. You know, maybe not everybody really remembers what happened or or who Polly Class is and why it matters that we're talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, first I'll say that you know we were a really tight-knit blended family. Jess, you and Polly were the same age and you were yeah. stepsisters and best friends from the age of mm -hmm. three. And I was six years younger than you both. Uh, Polly and I had different dads, but the same mom. You know, I think these kinds of family structures are more and more common these days. Um, we pretty much all just grew up sharing bedrooms and bunk beds and being one big family. Yeah. So we, uh, we are actually recording this on October 1st of 2021. So today is the 28th anniversary of Polly's kidnapping, which is, you know, it's always a pretty sad and intense day in our family. Mm -hmm. So on this evening, 28 years ago, a man saw Polly walking home. Uh, he followed her and he broke into our house that night and abducted Polly while my mom and I were asleep. She was 12 years old. Um, there was an immediate nationwide search for her, which continued over the following two months until her body was found. Her killer was apprehended and convicted and is on death row at San Quentin. And like we said, it was just a very public case. You know, it was all over headlines for months and years after that, I think, because it was just sort of every parent's worst nightmare, mm -hmm. you know? Like Polly's story seemed to hit people in a very personal way. Yeah, people felt less safe and were scared of something like that happening to them, I think. And mm -hmm. there were probably fewer kids playing in the streets after Polly's kidnapping. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of fear and people were angry and they wanted to make sure that 
nothing like that could happen again. Uh, and that is what really set the stage for the passage of some really punitive sentencing laws called three strikes. Let's maybe talk a bit about three strikes before we share more about, you know, our personal experience. Yes. Uh, so due to this kidnapping, which was so shocking for so many people, legislators worked to pass what came to be known as the three strikes law, which is a tough on crime sentencing law really designed to ensure that people convicted of repeat offenses like the person who murdered Polly would serve extremely long prison sentences or sometimes life sentences. Yeah. Initially, people supported this law, mm -hmm. I think, including, you know, everyone in our family. Its intention was to keep people safe by ensuring that people who had a very serious violent crime history were removed from society. Yeah. The, the idea was that people convicted of multiple offenses or strikes stayed in prison and you get three strikes and you're out for life, life sentence. And there had actually been a pretty much identical law that had been proposed the previous year called the Street Sweeper Law. But that law was seen as so extraordinarily harsh at the time that it was immediately rejected. So that law was then rebranded, though, as Three Strikes. And it was widely mm -hmm. embraced after Polly was killed in the way that she was, with a man coming into her home and taking her from her bedroom while she had friends over with her mother sleeping less than 20 feet away. So this kidnapping really struck a chord of fear among people, particularly among white suburban communities. And I remember being told as a kid, I was 13 years old when three strikes passed, and I was told that the law would make it so that what happened to Polly wouldn't happen to other kids. And I thought it was a good thing that three strikes existed, but pretty quickly we realized that there were actually some major problems with the law. Um, it turned out that the reality of the types of crimes that would qualify for strikes was different than how it was actually sold to the voters. Mm -hmm. But by the time we realized that, it was too late. You know, it was already voted in and it had passed with bipartisan support. Yeah. But then it turned out that people were being sentenced to decades in prison for stealing, you know, $20 from a cash drawer or taking a bicycle yeah. or for minor marijuana possession, you know, these are real examples that I think signify, you know, how a law that was supposed to restore justice has largely done the opposite. Um, three strikes has been passed in 29 states. 29 states. Right. And there's a really harsh federal version. Um, and Polly's kidnapping was the event that caused the three strikes law to really take off nationally. Yeah, and there have been some really important reforms that have passed over the past decade, and we'll be talking to many of the people who are instrumental in passing those reforms in future conversations, but more is needed, actually. Mm -hmm. um, this law does a lot of damage and is keeping way too many people in prison. Yeah. I think it's also really important to acknowledge that the worst effects of this law have been felt by people of color and particularly by Black communities. You know, these harsh sentencing laws really reinforce racial disparities and systemic racism in the criminal justice system. And that's a huge part of why we feel that three strikes and laws like it need to change. That's right. In California, almost 80% of people convicted under three strikes are people of color, most actually for nonviolent crimes. And this data was given to us by Mike Romano of the Stanford Three Strikes Project. And this is a big part of what's motivating this work for us. Um, witnessing the courage of people protesting after the murder of George Floyd last summer 
really galvanized us to start reaching out to different organizations to see if there was anything we could do to help. And I was pretty shocked to learn that people felt like our voices were actually needed here. Yeah, I remember those conversations. I remember <laughs> your face looking at, at these people and you were kind of uh-huh. shocked. You know, you're like, really? Our voices matter? You think right. You think we can make a difference here? Yeah, I just couldn't believe it. You know, I was like, why? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, there was a lot I, I didn't fully understand at that point, I think, about which crime victims are heard and which are too often ignored. Uh, that will be a big theme of many of our future episodes. Mm-hmm. And... I think that's really the discomfort I've been sitting with since we started having these conversations because it feels like our voices shouldn't matter, at least not any more than anyone else who has been a victim of violent crime, right? Like, I think that part of the guilt and shame that I feel in looking back at all of the attention we received is that there are so many kids who are victimized and who never received the degree of anger and heartbreak that Polly did because... They happen to grow up in less privileged communities or in places where violence is more prevalent. But, you know, here's the thing. When children are hurt or abused or killed in senseless acts of violence, we should all feel that loss just as deeply as people felt Polly's, you know, any child. Any child. And so here we are speaking about our experiences for the first time. And it's still not really easy or comfortable um, to speak about what was such a personal loss in this public way. Yeah, there's. I think there are a lot of things I feel protective about sharing. Uh, so I guess my question is, what do we want people to know about what it was like to have been Polly's sisters? You know, what would be useful to share here? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it speaks to partly why we've actually not been involved in the public eye for so long. I mean, mm-hmm. so there's Polly. We could talk about mm-hmm. what it was like to know her and be her sister. Um, yeah as well it was as what it was like to lose her how we did. Um, but the thing I want to talk about now is what it was like being related to this public figure of Polly Class. Yeah. Um, so there was so much attention and so much media that really most people in our family kind of retreated from the public eye. Mm-hmm. It was really overwhelming at the time. I remember almost every day it seemed that there was some news story. We'd see it if we just opened the newspaper And it was a really heightened kind of sensational moment. And, you know, we were in the center of that as part of the family and as sisters. Mm -hmm. So just speaking to that piece, I think that a big part of my not wanting to be involved publicly is that being related to Polly Class would typically get a pretty big reaction from people when we'd tell them, you know, there would be this, this, (gasps) this gasp kind of reaction um, that often happened, even actually still happens. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a kid and as a young adult, that was a lot to deal with. Really, it was too much to deal with. And I didn't want that event to define who I was in other people's eyes or really in my own eyes, actually. And so, Mm -hmm. so I backed off from all that in telling people about it. And I didn't really talk about it for many years, actually. Yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, when I think about the media attention we received, I think about how it was both this enormous privilege, you know, because many, many people don't receive anything like the attention that we did. We were very validated as victims. And we know what happened to Polly when there are so many people who never find out what happened to their loved ones that have disappeared. But I also think the attention delayed our healing in really important ways. Yeah, 
You know, another reason I think we haven't been involved in the public conversation so far is that it feels like Polly was made into something that she wasn't. She became Mm -hmm. this symbol and was almost used as a tool for this harsh criminal justice agenda. And and I couldn't really let in the reality that that was happening. You know, it was just too much to really know what to do with. Absolutely. I think that was a big barrier both of us had to push through in order to do this work. Yeah. So what would you say about your experience growing up in the aftermath of all that? I would say that the primary experience I can describe is confusion. You know, it was incredibly confusing to go from being a pretty normal kid to suddenly existing in this reality where really scary things could happen. It was confusing that our tragedy was broadcast across the globe and everyone knew about it and had their own thoughts and feelings about it without ever having known Polly. It was confusing to see the sister I knew and loved you know, turned into a political tool. Like you said, I, I don't think I can overstate how much that has compounded my trauma and the pain of losing her. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, one of my most painful memories from that time happened just months after Polly was found. Uh, I was seven and I was asked to go on a television program at the white house Mm -hmm. where the president was supposed to answer children's questions. Yeah. Yeah, I I can't remember who exactly encouraged me to say what I said, but I do remember clutching this little stuffed dolphin to my chest and telling Bill Clinton that I was scared that I wouldn't get to grow up uh, because there were a lot of bad people out there on the streets. You know, I, I remember him tearing up and telling me that he would try to do something about that. And the shame that I feel when I remember that moment is pretty devastating. You know, I was this little girl whose sister had been murdered just months earlier, and I had no idea how much trauma was in store for me in my life as a result of that, or how catastrophic the impact of three strikes would be. And I really wish that I could go back in time and just erase that moment. (sighs) What would you say about your experience from that time? Yeah, I mean, that's just quite a story. Um, I think for me, I also woke up to the reality when I was 12 that really awful things happen. Um, Like that there are people that do terrible things. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really feel truly safe anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it also made me into like more of a courageous teenager. Um, (laughs) I think Polly's death kind of catapulted me into living bigger. You know, I played basketball Mm -hmm. and I got a bit aggressive on the court. I don't know if, I don't know if you remember, but I'd come home with like bloody knees (laughs) and bruises (laughs) and stuff. Um, I also sought out big new experiences like being an exchange student my senior year of high school or starting my own business in my 20s. I think I've wanted to live really fully, partly because Polly lost her life so young and missed out on so many things. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, You know, as I got older, I know I wanted to forge a life and an identity that wasn't just about victimhood and the fear and trauma around what happened to us. Uh, You know, I... I'm a writer and I wanted to craft the narrative of my own life and make more self-determined choices rather than just kind of being this person that had been done to, Mm. you know, and I think a lot of survivors feel that way. Um, Mm -hmm. I I will say that creating this podcast and stepping into the kind of advocacy that we want to do after avoiding the spotlight for so long can feel a little scary in moments, Mm -hmm. you know, like... 
as much as we both love Polly, I don't think either of us want to be defined by this terrible thing that happened to us. But we also recognize that there is more work that is needed to prevent further harm from happening. And committing ourselves to that feels like a loving tribute to Polly, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about what we're going to be doing on this podcast. You know, right. uh, over over the past year, we've been having some great conversations to help us educate ourselves and learn mm-hmm. more about what kind of action is needed really to fundamentally change our approach to justice. And our hope is that these conversations can also be an educational resource for other people who care about these issues, but may not know how to take action or get involved. Yeah, I think a lot of people are confused that there has been this sort of dominant narrative that what victims of crime want is punitive sentencing laws, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. But the thing is that that narrative actually excludes a lot of survivors. The truth is that folks of color have largely not been represented in the conversation around what victims want, which is so strange because people of color are significantly more likely to be victims of crime than white folks like us. Yeah. And that's why we've been really seeking out perspectives from people who have been the most impacted by these tough on crime approaches. Yeah. I mean, the organizers and advocates we've been speaking to have been incredibly generous to help us learn more about innovative strategies Mm -hmm. that communities are using to disrupt cycles of harm. We've been learning about rehabilitation and reentry services that allow people leaving prison to turn their lives around and rejoin society We're learning about community-based violence intervention Mm -hmm. and restorative justice and trauma treatment and Mm -hmm. so many other approaches that are designed to create justice and equity. Yeah. Uh, Will you say more about that? Yeah. Okay. So one of the main things that I think needs to be at the forefront of the conversation is violence prevention. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of people hear that term and they feel a sense of skepticism or hopelessness. Like, how do you address the root causes of violence or trauma within a community or a society. Yeah. Like, how do you even begin to resolve that, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like it would just be easier, in a way, just to put people in prison who commit crimes, right? Right. Like, there's something straightforward or logical about that. Yeah. But, you know, the one thing that has become really clear over the past few decades since this tough-on-crime ethos really took hold is that we have incarcerated more people than ever before. Mm -hmm. There are more police on the streets than ever before, and our communities have not gotten safer. In fact, I think in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the protests of last year, a lot of folks would argue that things feel less safe. I think that's why prevention is so important. You know, by the time someone has been hurt and the person who harmed them is in prison, it's too late. You know, as survivors, what we want is to prevent that harm from happening in the first place. Totally. Um, And it's also worth acknowledging that while these are issues that we've both cared about for a long time, we are new to having these kinds of conversations in a really public way. You Mm -hmm. know, so uh, we're probably going to be clunky and awkward in moments. Oh, yeah. You know, I know there are times where we'll look at each other. We already have, you know, and and (laughs) be like, "Is, is this an okay question to ask? Yeah. Am I allowed to ask this? Mm-hmm. You know, there's probably going to be times when we mess up or look back on a particular conversation and wish we had done it a little differently. And mm-hmm. as a couple of privileged white ladies, it's probably guaranteed that this is going to get awkward or difficult in moments. But I think it's important to have these conversations anyway. Yeah. My hope for us is that we can embody a mindset of 
humility and learning and really embrace our own fallibility as we find Mm -hmm. our way here. Yeah. You know, I I think it's important that people not allow the fear of imperfection or of getting it wrong to hinder their willingness to enter into these conversations. Absolutely. And especially to learn from folks who have different backgrounds and different perspectives. You know, I think as long as we're willing to be accountable, I think we need to be brave enough to risk messing up or feeling awkward because at the end of the day, there are too many lives at stake. Well said. So the name of this podcast is a new legacy because the truth is that we don't want the legacy of the little girl that we loved to be these unjust laws and tough on crime policies. We want a new legacy for Polly and a new legacy of justice for this country that's inclusive and and holistic. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, there are so many amazing people who are and have been forging the path. And we're so excited to get to speak with them on this podcast. And we will be putting out opportunities to support the work that people are doing at the end of every episode. And we hope that you'll feel inspired to get involved. It's exciting. So thank you so much for joining us for this first episode of A New Legacy. Our next episode will be a conversation with Tanish Hollins, who is the executive director for Californians for Safety and Justice. Tanish has been instrumental in passing some very important reforms on the ballot over the past several years. And I can categorically say that our conversation with Tanish changed my life. (laughs) Yeah. Her voice and her story is one that I believe urgently needs to be heard. So please tune in for that. And in the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about our work, check out our website, anewlegacy.com, and we'll talk to you next time.